0: I don't have to define myself as anything, that any time I use the words I am, I am thereby defining myself and locking myself into a box. And outside of that box is all other possibilities. And inside that box is something very small and narrow. I'm not anything in particular, and therefore free to be everything.
1: It's the TMI Project Podcast Season 2, Black Stories Matter. I'm Dara Lurie. After our performances, audience members often tell us they want to know more about the storytellers, that the monologues pique their curiosity. So that's how we're approaching this podcast, telling the stories behind the stories. Today, the story behind the story is about Micah, my friend, co-workshop leader and the co-host of this podcast. Micah and I have a lot in common. For instance, our birthdays are two days apart. We also both grew up as mixed-race kids in America with Jewish fathers and black mothers who were dancers. At TMI Project, we have a couple theories about how Micah is able to be in so many places at once. One is that he must have clones. Another is that he travels through little rips in the space-time continuum. But my personal theory is that Micah is a fifth-dimensional being who moves through our 3D continuum with ease. In addition to co-facilitating storytelling workshops, He serves on the boards of many local social good organizations, teaches mindfulness, sells vegetables at the farmer's market, hosts a weekly hip-hop radio show with his son. Oh, and he works full-time dismantling late-stage capitalism with the Good Work Institute.
0: People talk about um, the extractive economy, really just talking about capitalism and how it extracts, right? It, It extracts from the earth greatly, but I think the biggest thing that is extracted is our ability to imagine. If we can't really imagine, then, then it means we've closed off possibility. And that's, that's everything.
1: Micah is idealistic, but he's never sanctimonious. And even more surprising, he's never frantic. He always seems to have time for a chat. He's not an extrovert, but he's not hiding either. In fact, he's a little hard to miss with his ever-morphing hairstyle and signature oversized glasses. He attributes this boxlessness partially to the years in his childhood that he divided his time between Mount Vernon, a largely black suburb of New York City, and the mostly white Croton-on-Hudson, a village in upstate New York.
0: Socioeconomically, it was very different um racially it was very different right in mount vernon there was like there was one older white guy who lived like just a block down a block over other than that if you saw a white person stop mount vernon you're like oh really now nah, this is happening and then whereas in Crowan on hudson i'd go there on the weekends and there were there were really small handful of black people especially black young people right like Two out of the, let's say, five in the whole town were my stepbrothers. Uh, My father didn't really practice Judaism a whole lot, so my mother wanted us to have some kind of religious upbringing, so she sent us to my grandmother's Protestant church for Sunday school. But she became a Buddhist when I was about nine, so then I went to Buddhist meetings instead. But then I went to Catholic school for junior high and high school. This crazy, like, mix of things impacted me. Honestly, I've always thought it was my blessing, right? That, like, I think a lot of kids of mixed race even feel the need to, it's a common thing that kids feel the need to pick. And I think it was just really clear for me early on that, like, I'm never going to be able to pick a box because, like, I don't fit in any of them. Growing up in Mount Vernon, um, hip-hop is kind of the default culture. And certainly, like, I listen to a lot of hip-hop, but, like, the first cassette I ever owned was Synchronicity by the Police. Um, And then I was listening to a whole bunch of metal, you know, when I was in high school. I was the first person in the pit, you know, like, that was me. And there's a decent chance that at all those shows, I might have been the only person of color.
1: Micah is the product of a long line of powerful women, starting with his mom, Marlene Ferdig.
0: So my mom used to dance for Alvin Alley. She actually stopped dancing for Alvin Alley when she had me. There, there's one word that I've heard a lot of people use in describing my mother, and that's regal. My mom, as a Buddhist, Nishunday uh, Shonen Buddhist, so it means that she often chants nam myoho Puts you in alignment, maybe, with um, the universe protects you. People often chant to bring into their lives what they what they want to bring into their lives. And I can remember so many times, like school gets out, I go to my friend Adam's house, who live like two blocks away from school. If I could maybe happen to call and catch my mom at work before she got home, maybe she'd stop and pick me up. If I couldn't catch her, because again, no cell phones. If I wasn't able to catch her, that means she'd get home first. And so when the sun goes down, I'm like, I need a ride. Like, not trying to walk home. Like, streets in my Vernon, again, kind of rough. Be like, you you, got to walk home. Like, you, you could have walked home sooner. Just chant. No. I've looked back on that about, like, just how profound my mother's faith was. I think it was actually really empowering. Chant. There's nothing else you can do. Do that. And it's worth noting that, like, having retold her this story since, she she cannot believe that she said that to me. She's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I'm like, yeah, you did.
1: In his first TMI Project monologue, all the way back in 2017, Micah considers the historic treatment of black people in cinema and pays tribute to another powerful female in his life, his grandmother, Blondina Fertig.
0: Growing up, there are only a few black TV shows. Shows made for us, and then everything else. Shows featuring people who have our skin color. Sure, there's MTV. But thank God for BET because there are a number of music videos featuring black music that MTV just can't seem to fit into its regular rotation. Yo MTV Raps is only a half hour a week. There's the occasional black character on your primetime shows, and then there's the Jeffersons, Good Times, What's Happening. Then in a class of its own, there's the Cosby Show. If you can understand the significance of these shows, it's probably because you are black. You understand when we went from moving on up to being as high up as we knew. That's what made the Cosby Show so remarkable. We looked good. We looked smart. Funny. Wealthy. Educated. We felt proud. Orrin Roots was on TV. That was something different entirely. I was young and don't fully remember what it felt like. But my mother tells me, during that week while the show was on TV, You just couldn't see the white people around you the same way. I grew up with my stepbrother, watching all the action movies I could, knowing from the start that there could only ever be one character with our skin color in the cast. And as sure as anything, they would die first. This is the kind of thing you laughed about. You would watch waiting for it, expecting death because you knew that the character was of so little value to the story just like the real-life American story or how they tell it. But there was this one movie, In Too Deep. Or was it Deep Blue Sea? Too many damn shark movies. But do you remember it? It was that one star in LL Cool J. He didn't die first. I'm 15 years old. My stepbrother and I, we sit together watching Deep Blue Sea or just killer shark movie number 12, and we're waiting, waiting for him to die first. But we're dumbstrucked. Someone dies before him, a white guy. What? <laughs> he doesn't die second either. Oh, shit! He actually makes it to the end of the movie. We can't believe it. He survives with this lovely white couple all floating in the middle of the ocean after having survived and killed a shark, smiling with relief, waiting to be rescued. Finally, not only did we not die first, but we survived. I say we because that's how it feels. When the portrayal of your people is so few and so often lacking in depth or truth, or is only used as a means to remind you of your place, you feel like it's a we thing. But just then, just as we're about to cheer for our survival, out of nowhere, a shark jumps up and eats LL in one bite. (laughs) Damn! just like that, we're put back in our place. Wait! What? Wait, wait, wait. Actually, I think L.L. lived in that movie. I think he made it to the end of that shark movie. But that was when it started to change. It was some other movie where the black guy did die at the end, got eaten by a shark. Too many movies of us always dying to know the difference. The happy ending just doesn't include black people. The stories of our resilience, our fortitude, and our death. We almost made it, but once again, we're written off as the supporting character in the American dream. TV's changed a lot since then. My son knows the joke. We die first. I didn't teach it to him. It's just a thing. But it's different for him, because we don't always die first anymore. Luke Cage didn't. Luke Cage! Have you seen Luke Cage? Let me tell you, Luke Cage is vindication for all the black characters that had to die first. That's how it feels to me. I want more stories like Luke Cage where we don't just remind the world how greatly we contributed or sacrificed or how many of us died, but instead are a part of a story that envisions a world where we just do our thing. Get a raw deal, but stay strong. Gain superpowers, fall in love lose love, start over, fight corruption in the powers that be, overcome our past, fall in love again, and all to a dope-ass soundtrack. (laughs) Our people have superpowers. Did you ever hear the superhero, Dun dun, Blondina Furtick? No. No, you didn't. That's because she's my grandmother. But believe me, Blondina Furtick has superpowers. She grew up in South Carolina. Her mother died when she was only six years old of rheumatic fever. At 12, her father died of pneumonia. This is just her backstory. At 13, she was lucky enough to receive an education due to her siblings sending her off to live with a white family where she worked as a nanny and housekeeper. She was allowed to go to the colored high school while she worked for that white family. Later, she met and married my grandfather he promised her that when he retired from the post office, he would take her to all the places he was stationed in the army, and he kept that promise. France, Germany, England, Alaska. And let me tell you about Alaska real quick. My grandfather's all-black regiment complained about their unfair treatment and were stationed in Alaska as punishment for complaining. They built the first highway there. She went on to earn a master's degree in education and library science. She joined an organization to help Americans in Chinese relations through educators and took a month-long trip to communist China. Then she went to communist Russia under similar conditions. It was remarkable that she went to so many countries as a black woman at a time when Americans of any color rarely visited such places. She lived in Mount Vernon and through a life of hard work and activism changed the place. Everybody knew my grandmother. She got free school for lunches for the kids in Mount Vernon by taking the Board of Education to court and winning. She brought Martin Luther King Jr. to Westchester for the first time, and then later Mount Vernon. Everyone knew she could be hard as hell on you, hard as hell on you, but only because she expected greatness. That love, that way of showing it without ever saying it, because she didn't, was Blondina Furtick's superpower, and she shared it with everyone. You'd say, "I love you, Grandma," she'd say, "Well, all right." <laughs> but you knew. She was a superhero. So many of us are superheroes. And yes, we do have the best soundtrack the world has ever known. This soundtrack is why you love us, America. Why the first American, why the first American fad was the catwalk? Why you love blues, jazz, rock and roll, hip hop, and R&B. It's a cultural strength. A song of head nods, what's up, give and dap. It's a full body laugh. It's raising our voices, even when we aren't mad. It's using profanity because sometimes fuck that shit is just what I need to fucking say. It is speaking with our hands. It is the language with the code switched off. It is the song of stories told. It is everything I both love and hate about Chitlins. And yes, it is a privilege. It is going to the movies on opening night preferably some action movie, with the sold-out crowd of my people talking to the screen, laughing out loud, clapping our hands, snapping our, slapping our knees, maybe even having to stand up. Can we please make this happen? I miss it. The comfort of being in the majority, of just sitting back, eating popcorn in a movie theater with a hundred folks culturally bonded by that soundtrack, laughing together. Can we find a movie and a time to fill the theater together? Everyone can join in, all of you. But we won't quiet down for you. We will just be us in all the beautiful ways that each of us so uniquely represents our blackness. Maybe art imitates life. Maybe life also imitates art. Maybe if we stop dying first, we can stop dying first. Maybe if our lives are portrayed with value, maybe we will all begin to see our lives as having value. Maybe if black lives matter more on TV and in movies, black lives really will matter. Maybe.
1: Although we couldn't have known it at the time, A year after this performance, the movie Black Panther premiered starring Chadwick Boseman, and suddenly black people could immerse themselves in the world of Wakanda, could sit in a theater and see black greatness and complexity reflected back at them. Like Micah said in the monologue, maybe art imitates life, but life also imitates art. So you know what he did? He started a GoFundMe campaign, raised money, and bought out a couple screenings of Black Panther just for Black people in our community to attend. I was at the screening of Black Panther that night, and I can tell you, Blondina Fertig would have been proud. Micah once told me that he feels he is stepping into his Fertig womanhood. In other words, he's reaching up, up to the bar that she set for him, for his sister and his mother. For all of them. For all of us. So, it's been a few years since you read that monologue. And since then, there have been some powerful examples in movies and TV of Black people not dying first.
0: Just countless. In addition to Black Panther. uh, Blackish. Queen and Slim. There was Get Out and Us. Watchmen. Lovecraft Country. Sorry to Bother You. Love that movie. Pose. Pose. Pose, right? <laughs> so good.
1: that I, I just totally yeah.
0: Um, I will destroy you. Last black man in San Francisco. Insecure. We just, we just have shows, right? <laughs> like for us, by us, starring us. The stories that are told, who those stories are told by. All of that deeply impacts us and how we live. You know, I I get that there is someone who has felt secure in the world that they have defined as being white who now turns on the television and doesn't see themselves so much now turns on the television and sees that there are authentic stories from maybe lots of different angles that they don't feel comfortable with
1: that's a feeling that we as black people have known our whole lives that feeling of being unseen that our stories don't really matter But now, in the media, we're seeing shows and movies where black people are visible in a new way. We don't have to be just good or just villains to fit in with a white storyline. There are stories where we, as black people, are engaging with our own complexity and humanity, which runs the gamut from everything wonderful to everything terrible. Maybe this media is helping bring about a kind of mass psychic shift. So now non black people are showing up and saying, hey, these are human beings you're doing this stuff to.
0: It's one of the things I can remember that night when we were done with our performance. You know, a lot of people came up to all of us, and how many white people said to me that they they never noticed. They had never noticed that we always died first. Right? And these were people about my same age, so they would have watched the same TV I was watching. Watched the same movies I was watching, but didn't, didn't notice that. Um, and yet my same story for any black person that there was nothing about that that was even surprising. But to what you're saying, I felt like in people saying that to me, there was a sense of now I see that you were always dying first and now I can't unsee that. These are people. And so I, I have to show up, I have to show up on in the streets as well, or I have to do what I can to um, to fight for justice. This episode is dedicated to Blondina Furtick, my grandmother and a superhero.
1: This episode is a collaborative creation developed and written by myself, Haley Downs, and Micah. Additional writing by Shante Howell. Haley edited and produced, and it was mixed by Marlon Barry. The theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Additional music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, Absurdist, Anatech, and Micah. Our executive director is Eva Tenuto, and our director of external affairs is Sarah Rose. The operations manager is Blake Files. Shantae Howell is the publicist for this season of the podcast. And Clarissa Marie Ligon is our Black Stories Matter virtual workshop manager. Lauren Gill is our graphic designer and webmaster. This podcast is co-produced by Radio Kingston. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It really helps tmiproject.org forward slash Black Stories Matter. That's where you'll find more information about participating in online true storytelling workshops just for Black folks or attending a virtual live performance for an all-inclusive audience. Help us continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today. tmiproject.org